0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall and this is the C86 Show. Welcome to another thrilling episode in the ever-expanding world that is indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be Anthony Chapman from the band Collapse Lung, who I spoke to months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and that fusion with indie rock, rap and much, much more. So I want to bring you that interview probably broken up into various segments for your easy to digest uh, mind, brain, um, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. So I'm going to kick off the show and get the party rolling with your favourite of mine. Yes, it's Mr Predictable Time and this is, no that's not the title of the song, this is the track that I'm going to play. This is Eat My Goal.
1: Joke Billy, you time-tripping again? I can always tell you now, when you've been time-tripping
0: sign of young people having fun. That is Collapse Lung featuring the one and only Anthony Chapman who I spoke to a few months ago to find out about life in music and beyond. Um, so uh, prepare because it's a fascinating interview. He says I'm not biased at all. Anyway that was the chart band single titled eat my girl this is david easel this is the c86 show and um for those who might be excited and interested you can always contact me via facebook twitter just go to at c86 show and also all these shows have been podcast or archived should i say um via podcast i suppose and you can find them on four different locations um itunes spotify Cloud and Podbeam, do check out Podbeam, we love that. Anyway, before the first part of the interview, I think we'll play one more track. This is taken um, from a much later session by the band, in fact, it was a few years ago. It's uh, titled New Song, Old Band, and it goes something like this. But then... The
2: Grassroots music venues will be here forever. Princess Charlotte, the Duchess of York, the square. Nobody will ever make money turning them into luxury student flats. We know the doorman and the marquee on Charing Cross
1: I heard the internet was gonna be big. I saw the winter out on top of a red. the ridge. The looney tunes and old cartoons faded away and the colours went grey. Oh. Responsibility Never really got out of bed in the days ahead New song from an old band We hope you understand When I grew up I wanted to be a musician But you can't do both So I threw out the position Cos I still got love for the beans on toast You can coast the boast for so long Until it all goes wrong New song from an old band of the modern world, watch our forgotten flag unfurl We declare this piece of the rock the property of Future Shop You thought we were stone cold masters now we're cynical old bastards Corresponders abusive cos we still love pop music Your offence is offensive to me to a forensic degree You're down on bended knee if your friends disagree Something you don't want to hear on stage from a man this age New song from an old band We hope you understand Been too long in a cold band Without a new song from an old band We've it, but you don't want it We've this, but we'll front it. front it Been too long on a run. Band. Band. With a new song, new song, from an old, band. old band And he'll try to bring still skill back
0: Pump in Fun there by Collapse Long, and that was a track titled New Song, Old Band that came out in 2016. Hello and welcome to the show. This is David East or this the C86 Show. And this is the first part of my interview with leading man Anthony Chapman, who I spoke to a few months ago just in case you're curious. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, yes, and we had been slightly talking and introducing ourselves to each other, as you do when you've never spoke to that person before. And um, I was talking about the influence that John Peel had on me, and he also said snap. Well, he didn't. He um, he just said, yes, John Peel was kind of uh, the, the go-to place. And this is the first part of my interview where Anthony Chapman tells me his age. Anthony, tell us your age.
2: I'm 46, so... Uh... When I was 16, I was 16 in 1988, and that was kind of a big, uh, I don't know, to be totally honest, seeing Stump on the Tube was like sort of year zero of my eyes being open to sort of all possibilities. You know, yes. like, oh, you can kind of, right, so you can you can basically do anything. And I'd already, I was already a little bit aware of like Captain B Fart through a mate's dad's record collection. And, uh, but i but hip hop was like the first thing that I really got into. Um, and anything sort of electronic and a bit novel, I was always really into, but then that fateful Friday, <laughs> Friday evening in 87 or 88, now it must've been 87. I was like, Oh, okay. And that really, and then I, I just sort of listened to John Peel more and more and really loved the sort of, yeah, the, the, More that end of the guitar stuff, you know. This kind of, uh, I don't know, awkward, (laughs) for want of a better word, you know.
0: (laughs) Yes, well, it was. Well, there were three bands at that time who had that sort of. I suppose we slightly pigeonholed them as fans, but there was like uh, Big Flame Stump, and the other one, Bogshed. That was the other one. Yeah. So those
2: all of of whom I really love, although admittedly Big Flame and Bogshed, I was by the time I got to know them, I was they would they'd already ended so um i was a bit sadly a bit young to see him but weirdly coincidentally um alan brown from big flame came to our gig in huddersfield uh the other night so uh, which was which was very very nice i know i know him through him playing in uh, i don't know if you know a band called Sarandon. And um I I uh I produced a couple of records. oh in fact what am I talking about? I think I produced all their records actually. Um and and then I did some work for him on the last two Great Leap Forward records as well. So so yeah, it's <laughs> so you might think it seems a bit a bit strange. Uh, this sort of crossover between you know from the maybe the area your radio show would normally focus on but it makes total sense to me and and certainly the rest of us the rest of us in the band as well i think
0: yeah well i can remember because i mean obviously john peel played a lot of the indie jangly stuff but he also played all that first the early deaf jam records and i remember that first public enemy um, album yo bum rush the show which i went out and then he played all these kind of like Roxy Chante and The Real Roxanne and then sort of Mantronic. So all that kind of stuff was kind of also part of the show as, as long yeah. alongside things like the Bundu Boys and the Four Brothers and Thomas McFumo and the Blacks Unlimited. God, my memory's good, isn't it? Um, so, so, <laughs> so so, he was playing all this stuff and I would go and see all these bands, you know, because it was like, well, if John Peel played them, I'm going to go and see them now. Because, yeah. you know, I was just a bit obsessed and, uh, and a bit carried away and probably had nothing else to do. But I did find it incredibly exciting. So yes, um, yes, Alan Brown from Big Flame and the yeah. Big Leap Forward and another band that now slightly can't remember. But he was, yes, he was part of that. Oh, guy. he was in um, Witness. He Eyewitness, was in Eyewitness yes, as well. Yes, that's the band, because I was thinking of I. Lud- but it wasn't them at all but I knew that it was something like that that generation but yes so when did you because because obviously the other the other thing which John Peel was amazing about was that he introduced me to that whole Chicago um sort of I suppose dance scene which was um I can remember him playing Love Can't Turn Around and being like oh my mm. god have you heard this you know and people yeah but well,
2: the weird the weird thing about all that stuff was um well again not weird weird in retrospect maybe but not at the time was the the whole idea of, I mean, the first time that I heard uh, like house, I mean, the thing is, I already when I was a lot younger, I loved craftwork and I loved, you know, the Human League and and Heaven Seventeen and all this kind of electronic pop stuff, which is, you know, a bit dancey. Obviously, with the Human League, they did their the the re, you know the League Unlimited Orchestra, so they kind of they were kind of the first people to kind of do, you know. Taking these pop songs and doing dance remixes of them, but like so obviously, you know, really into hip hop and or electro as we all called it at the time. Uh, I don't most of us, uh, the school I went to in Essex, didn't really, didn't really use the word hip hop until much later. Um, and uh, we used to buy these street sounds electro compilations, and as things moved on with them. Um, there was sort of well, there was other, there was the street sounds original albums, which were like more club music albums, which obviously in the eighties, there was a lot of soul and sort of R and B, but even some of that stuff was kind of edging towards house music to later in the eighties. And then I always remember buying a, I think it was, there was this compil- compilation series in probably 87 that started called up front. It was like up front one and it had two records in it and it had like a bunch of hip hop on one. And then it had a, uh, kind of a bunch of proto house on it and it had jack your body on it the steve silk Hurley record and and that was like the first time i heard it and that was about i think that was around a year before it was a it was a number one here um so back then the two things seemed to belong together do you know what i mean like they 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 felt like uh they were over of a of a kin and they you know that you it was totally normal that you would expect those things to be together and then much later on well and obviously John Peel you know he had the same (laughs) he had the same idea as well that it was this was all just really really interesting music that was that was that was coming out and naturally it all kind of belonged together and then it's only really much much later where you know you have these kind of lines drawn between oh no this is hip-hop and this is this is house, and never the twain shall meet. You know, um, <laughs> yes. but I actually feel like that's totally changed back again because the thing, things like grime are totally like um, when you see sort of live performances of it and stuff like that, and there's club nights where, you know, a lot of that stuff gets. But it's thought of as like club music now. You know, it's really, really thought of again as club music. So I kind of feel like everything's sort of, it's it's you know we it's, we always say it's cyclic, isn't it? You know, it, it, things go one direction and then they eventually come back, come back around again. So, yeah, but no, you, you, I mean, I, I remember when um, John Peel started playing a lot of that stuff. And of course there was a lot of grumbling from some people, but then again, I'm sure when he started playing punk in the mid seventies, that, that again, there was probably a lot of grumbling from, you know, you're sort of more,
0: Grateful yeah. Dead fans. <laughs> exactly. The life, the long And Jackson Bryant, yes, I know. They, that, was, that was kind of like, that was the divorce moment, wasn't it? I think when he had that punk show with the Ramones and the Damned yeah. and stuff like that. But I can remember those electro-compilations because I started collecting them, and I think the guy who ran it called Something Khan. And he Morgan did a, Khan. That's yeah, the man, yes. And yeah. Um, yeah, he did this big event at Wembley Arena in nineteen eighty-six, which I went to. It was I think it was almost referred UK to. UK Fresh. Was yeah, that the U- yes. Fresh now? Oh wow, yeah, I,
2: I was I was 14. I wished I could have gone.
0: <laughs> Indeed, there you go, you can't go to everything. But I have to say, just remembering that event, um everybody used to go to those rap events gigs with whistles and absolutely belted out and you're hearing afterwards what's completely shot plus there's also the heavy bass bins anyway that's the first part of my interview with Anthony Chapman from Collapse Lung we're going to have a break and have some more music and then more interview this is going to be their second single Dismix indeed he says was rather dramatic.
1: Yes. That's rock and roll for you. We live it.
0: Indeed. There you go. That's that's what happens when you're in a band. That is collapse long. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Anthony Chapman, where I had mentioned the Beastie Boys and whether that had changed his life. It changed mine. Anyway, Anthony, did it change your life?
2: Uh, <laughs> that's pretty weird. I mean, the Beastie Boys, I mean, the, so, well, yes, Um, again it was this whole idea of you know it's hip-hop but we can bring all of these other elements into it and the thing is they weren't the first to do it you know the run dmc really were like the 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 people to first do that where they were kind of bringing rock elements into the into the music but um it was a huge record it was a you know i've i've still got my vinyl copy of it that i bought from our price in harlow uh when it came out in what 86, I think it came out in 86. And, um, and that was, and you know, and I remember at the time for me, I was quite like, you know, Oh, I was into this when it came out, not like nine months later when suddenly it was in the charts and they were having hits and stuff like that. You know, of course I was like, I was liking to think I was really, really a clever, but the fact is they were just an amazing pop phenomenon you know what i mean like the the the, this is the the, there's a lyric on one of the one of the songs on the new collapse song album where you know where where we there's just this line which says because we still love pop music and that's really a big thing in in the band and also i mean i teach as well and and a lot of this i teach music production and, and related stuff and i'm always first lesson of the term i'm always saying you know i'll say pop music and this is what what i mean when i say pop music it's like if it's got words and a melody and a beat then it's pop music of one kind or another you know and for the beastie boys it was like you know what they were able to do and how they were able to completely um hook the media as well you know and remember this and obviously this is beastie boys first album beastie boys because as we know obviously they completely over 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 like what uh eight years or something like that they completely changed you know they 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 totally took a different path which again is what one of again one of the things i really love about them is that when you say the beastie boys really you're talking about kind of like three different different bands almost in terms of the the music that they put out but you know just all under the same name and I, i really love that i love that um evolution and yeah totally for for people like us i mean for certainly for people like me at that time when the first record came out it was a huge huge record you know um And the thing is, it was a brilliant hip-hop record as well. That's the thing that we mustn't take away from it. I can still remember hearing, uh, I mean, the first track I heard off it, I mean, I hadn't heard any of their punk stuff. I wouldn't really have come into contact with anything like that back then. Um, But the first track I heard was um, Slow and Low, which is just, like, amazing. You know, it's it's such a mad-sounding record, like, just really wild sound. The drums are huge. It's really slow, um and uh collapse like we actually sampled that on our first record uh the, the, let it flow let yourself go that vocal and um we uh we didn't know the beasties but we had like kind of like, like i did a lot of work uh, with um or I, I, I kind of had vague sort of contact through and via people that we knew and um somebody got the word to mike d and just saying oh this these guys from london have uh sampled slow and low is that cool and we got a fax back from Mike D going yeah that's totally cool we we totally believe in like letting you know uh artists use that stuff and of course I'm, and I'm even at the time I was thinking well it's good that you think that I'm not sure uh Def Jam or whoever owns the license to it now would feel the same <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, <laughs> but we never you know thankfully we never really sold enough records to to sort of uh register on uh Yes, <laughs> on on sort of sample sample uh, lawyers' radars.
0: So. <laughs> this is true because because actually I just remember there was also kind of for those people who enjoy that kind of um, sampling, and I remember that was Paul's. Boutique was the one that was really sort of fantastic. But there was also bands like um, Dallas Soul. And then there was the KLF with that kind of much Mm. sort of playful quality where sampling went kind of crazy. And also, bizarrely, Chumbawamba also did an album which got completely banned because it sampled so much. And they hadn't even bothered to... Ask Abba, Paul McCartney and everybody here, all these major people, what they might think about it. And it was a bit like, yeah, I don't think you can do that. I think you're going to have to shove all those under your bed again. Yeah. So, um, yes, it was bizarre. So, look, because, because in a simplistic way, you know, I've, I've kind of got that kind of and this isn't the mainstream you know, top of the pops. This is kind of more the indie stuff that that for me was from about 80, 83 to eighty seven. Basically, the years that the Smiths, and then you had that dance world with the Soup Dragons, Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, mm. and and then this kind of then you had grunge, obviously coming in, and mm. then you had a few other bands who were trying to you know like go through that period and those decades, like the Sundays and Carter. And so mm. obviously you were sort of coming. yes where where were you sitting in all that because obviously i mean
2: to our to our detriment sort of commercially we were always just determined to do what what pleased ourselves. you know i mean we start me and so me and steve the guitarist we just started fooling around in 1992 we met each other and we got talking and we both had like commodore amiga computers and using those computers you could do really rudimentary sampling and, and sequencing and we were just saying oh why don't we just make some tracks together and he was a guitarist as well he was much more of a rock guy you know and loved his rush uh, and 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 yes and, and all these things you know but like he's a year younger than me um and we had loads in common despite the the different Sort of outlooks on music, but there were lots of uh, you know there were lots of overlaps music-wise. Like you know, both really loved sort of you know kind of old funk records, and me a lot of it because I was like hearing hearing samples in hip hop records, and then trying to find out what it was like what the where the sample had come from. And um so we started fooling around in 1992. We did a couple of gigs. We did one gig where it was just the two of us, kind of like messing around, being—I mean, it really being silly, you know. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, you'd never guess with the stupid band name that we've got, like, you know, it was really silly, and uh, and and literally we were in the studio making the first single, and I and I just suddenly thought, oh, maybe we should have changed the name of the band. <laughs> like we literally, we just didn't do it, and then we were and then, then in a way. I think bloody mindedness we were like no let's let's see let's see if we can make this work um but yeah so 93 was when um so we there was a guy who was in the year above me at school nihal who was a was a really good rapper and a real sort of charmer like you know even my mum always used to say oh he's got the gift of the gab He'll, <laughs> you, you know and 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 we just kind of said oh why don't you come and just do some stuff with us and it was just at a gig no rehearsal no idea what he was going to do and it went well and it people liked it and um Steve Lamac happened to be there because he's got a very long-standing connection with Harlow he kind of started his journalistic career there and um and wrote a review in NME and then basically being the sort of early 1993 music industry it was still just crazy so literally me and Steve worked in the same place in the same office and We'd made a demo and we'd put our num- uh, the office number on it and just basically the entire time we were just getting phone calls from every single record company. You know, it was the time when every single major label had scouts uh, who basically, if there was a mention was made of a band in, in the press, they had to be able to document that they'd been in touch with them. You yes. know what I mean? They actually had to go. At the end of the week, they were to go, OK, look, there's all, all these bands mentioned in me look, here is my communication with him. blah, blah, blah. So we were just getting literally, like, I mean, you know, I remember we had a stack of post-it notes with all people's numbers on it and stuff like that. It was mad. And it was a mixture of, you know, really junior people who probably it would never go anywhere to some sort of serious, like, offers and stuff like that. And we did actually get offered a proper, proper deal with GoDiscs, which we amazingly (laughs) uh, turned down. I think we looked at it and went, hang on a minute this is insane. You know, I think no, you would imagine normally in that kind of situation, people would just jump on it and go, oh yeah, great, brilliant. But we, even then, with no real music industry experience, my only music industry experience was, I played bass in a in a band, who were played a lot on uh, John Peel, actually, a band called Pregnant Neck. Um, and uh, uh, you see, I've got form for these terrible names, although I didn't think of the name for that band that already existed. Um, but, but you know, I am basically had no didn't know anything about the music industry, didn't know anything really about how it worked, didn't know how rights and, and royalties and all that worked. But for some reason, me and Steve looked at it and we were just like, this isn't right, because they were offering us, you know, early 90s levels of money to sign this deal, and it was like eight albums, and we were just like, This is crazy. And then we just ended up talking to um Steve Lamac again and with a couple of other people we'd started this label deceptive and did we want to maybe do two singles and just see how it goes and that's kind of how that um how we went down that route Nihau actually left and did get a deal with go discs for his own act um but they their record never came out so in a weird sort of way we were kind of vindicated because it was like yeah you see you got the money up front but then nothing happened but Nihao is now the day, uh, Radio 5 Live Afternoons show presenter. So I think he's doing okay.
0: And that is good to hear. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Anthony Chapman from Collapse Lung, which I'll say quite a few times. And I'll probably say, this is David Eason on the C86 show, even more. But this is going to be some music to keep the party rolling. This is going to be another track by the band. I have to say, if you like Collapse Lung, you're in for radio gold today. Otherwise, well... You should just like them anyway anyway he's a nice guy let's admit it this is um, a track titled board game That's the Collapse Lung with the track titled Board Game. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Anthony where I'd been talking about, um, actually, bizarrely, Black Sabbath and their first record because they'd been playing the material for years and just went into the studio and recorded almost in an afternoon the classic first album. I was just curious to know how quickly Collapse Lung managed to get their material for their first album out there. Anthony, we wait in.
2: It was tough. It was really tough. I mean, yeah, we did the two. We did two single, I and mean, we six tracks total with Nihau and then obviously he'd left. So we 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 put the feelers out about getting somebody else in, and we we heard from this guy Jim, who none of us had any link with before. It was literally like it was. It was actually through, Haytham, the the frontman of Sensor, because we'd done a couple of gigs with them, and he'd heard that Niall had left, and he said to Jim, who it was an old friend of his, oh, you should. Talk to these guys, you'd be perfect for that. And actually, he was completely right. Nia Nia is brilliant, and he's an amazing character and a brilliant rapper. But with Jim, it was like we found a total kindred spirit. Even though we, I mean, we he's from Cheam in Surrey, and we, me and Steve, certainly from Essex. And we so we're opposite sides of London. So not in London, but you know what I mean. Uh, situated opposite sides, opposite sides of the M25, basically. But we both had the same outlook and sense of humor and tastes really you know real magpie sort of tastes wanting to be into a bit of everything but yeah so we w- once we got him on board we then we had to really start getting it together to try and um, write the material and it, and it's it's really that situation is probably the biggest change uh from back then to now and i know lots of, to be honest and this isn't just because you know most of our records are uh musically are based around you know program beats and samples and stuff like that it's the same for everybody it's the same for guitar bands as well just nowadays so well back then you know with us we had to find somewhere to actually write the music you know so we would have to you know we would have a computer and a sampler we need a mixer we didn't really have a studio available to us all the time we were lucky in harlow There was this venue the square um where me and Steve both kind of came. I mean, The Square is basically the reason, I'm literally the reason I'm sat in this room talking to you now. Without that place, like, you know, that wouldn't have happened. There's also, um, on a side note, Paul Epworth, the producer who produces Adele and, and all stuff, he started out, he's like a year or two years younger than me, he started out there as well. So, um, you know, this place was, amazing. it's no longer there, it's literally been bulldozed now. But um, But anyway, yeah, so we started doing a bit of work in the studio there because we could kind of get in there in the middle of the night. And, um, and it was tough, you know, it took a long time. I mean, literally making the music, uh, even, you know, the initial beat to, with a sample and program beats or whatever, to get people to kind of add other stuff to, took ages and ages and ages. Thankfully, Jim had quite a lot of lyrics already. Uh, uh, but you know, it really took a long time. So 1994, early 94, Jim was with us. We recorded a single, we did a big tour with um, Credit to the Nation, like oh, yes, the Nation yes. who at the time were were like you know in the charts. Because they uh, had that
0: one with Chumbawamba, hadn't they?
2: That's right, yeah. And um, and so and then we did another single. And then it wasn't until probably like I think it must have been March or April the following year, '95, when the album actually came out. Um, so it took a long time to put it together, uh, which was a real problem back then because you know the record company had sort of thinking what have we done because <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're just wondering where and it was it wasn't trust me we were not like sitting on a you know we weren't sitting on our hands doing nothing it just took a long time to do stuff um for the for the second record though we by that time we'd got ourselves a studio very small studio in london and we could work a lot quicker and actually we approached it in a different way with the first one we wrote this wrote the songs demoed everything uh using other studios and then went into big studios to record it and to mix it with the second one we built our own studio so we actually wrote and demoed it all there and then we went in another studio in the same complex to record it which was a bit cheaper than going off to you know one of the big studios and then when we did the mix we we used uh one of the rooms at matrix which again isn't there there anymore which is the studio where they recorded like the first uh clash album or maybe the first couple of clash albums never mind the bollocks was recorded there um summer Bohemian Rhapsody also so it was like a famous studio in London we used the little mix room they had so what we did was we sped everything up by because we had access to our own studio we could just work all the time so we we were able to just work all the time get everything written by that time we knew what we were doing a bit more
0: yeah
2: um and there and then by the time we got into the studio actually like making it like tracking all the 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 the, you know the master versions of the vocals and stuff like that we also managed to pull off the frankly ridiculous coup of getting Belinda from My Bloody Valentine to come and sing on it and and until they did their their comeback album a few years ago um, we were quite proud that the last thing that that Belinda had been on was a collapsed lung record which is just so ridiculous to this day we meet people and and we mention that and they just look at us like what like they just can't believe it and again it's just that sort of you know like I said even though you know at first glance you might not imagine people like us with the band that we've got having links with you know artists like that like My Very Valentine or you know all these kind of gnarly sort of London Noisy types, you know, but we totally do you know we, we kind of were going to a lot of the same gigs. Johnny, our bass player, he used to work for my time, and you know it's it, it's it's incred- it's even more incestuous, I think than anyone would would really imagine yes, um, yes. so yeah, all of that stuff was you know so the second album came together a lot quicker, but you 're totally right it 's a classic problem with with bands that get you know picked up when they haven 't really got a huge amount of um history you know they they haven't got much material but then like you said with the you know older bands like in the past they would have come up playing gig upon gig upon gig you know um and and they do the first album and it's just like oh all of our best material and then of course you get the classic sophomore slump don't you so yes. where the second one is a bit like oh <laughs> what are we going to use now?
0: Well, it's so, interesting because, you know, you look back at the Beatles and obviously Brian Epstein thought, yeah, you're all right, but you're not great, so we'll throw you over to Hamburg and you can play two gigs a night for... a X amount of months To sort of learn how to do it And people like David Bowie Spent most of the 60s You know Trying different things And not working And then eventually It was like God I've got it I've, You know Probably five or six years work And you know That first You know Black Sabbath album as well You know Hearing the stories From those guys That you know they, They'd been You know Dragging this stuff around You know Small venues And eventually did the album And it was like God that's brilliant So sometimes The first album is amazing Sometimes it's like They've done a few Which are forgettable And then they got Right we've got it We've got the magic formula We've got the fairy it's all good and yeah. um, it all sort of works but obviously yes kind of accumulating that body of work is quite something so and also you were very much part of that kind of because it's interesting you mentioned bands like Sensor who I totally forgot but I remember that first <laughs> album that everybody loved and that was a bit and they were a bit of a cru- they had a bit of a crusty following didn't they I seem yeah, to remember very much there was so. dreadlocks and, and people used to really <laughs> like the didgeridoo as well which I seem to remember <laughs> suddenly appearing on stage in various people who started faking you know an Australian <laughs> accent and becoming a bit sort of spiritual about their instrument and it's like oh that's interesting so yes the brew crew and sensor so So i can vaguely see that if you had those connections you would have probably got into those squat squat parties with with my bloody valentine and silverfish and that north london kind of grunge scene wasn't it
2: absolutely yeah yeah the silver i mean silverfish i knew really well because i used to book them at the square um like right from early on, you know, and and all of that, and the fate healers, all, all the stuff on Two Pure, like Paul and Richard from Two Pure, I got to know and worked with various bands on Two Pure, you know, because I've done lots of other stuff, like done sound for bands, and and I do studio work. I mean, I you know for like the last twenty years, I've been like doing studio work as well. So yeah, so it's it is weird. I mean, I and I, I really like it because to me, it feels totally natural because I think if you're the kind of person that is um, into sounds you know like it, it, it's not just about you know i'm not i'm not a songwriter in the sort of traditional sense of the word um I, i'm i'm in, i'm a fan you know what I mean? I mean i really really am a fan and and to me it just makes total sense to kind of latch on to lots and lots of different things and try and enjoy it and try and get inspiration from it as well you know i think that i think that you know and and i, and I find that a lot with artists that we met back then and also now you know um there's often a similar attitude you kind of gravitate towards each other um there's a band called Wybot who um supported us in london on saturday and i've i've seen them a few times i've i recorded their last ep um and I, they actually i so saw i've got this other band arndales which is much more of a sort of punk rock sort of garagey thing we got a, a couple of records out on in the red the label from america and um we did a gig in london and this band whybot was supporting i didn't know them i didn't know anything about them and then somebody said to me oh i was talking to the guy from uh, that support band and and he said he knows you uh, he said you meaning me know their mum and i was like oh okay well of course I, that made me feel really old first but yes. um i'm worried and then i and then i got chatting to him and he he's um the eldest son of Belinda from Marbelly Valentine. <laughs> I'm like, and of course, and then I'm like, and how old are you? And he's like, 30. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <I'm so old." laughs> but yeah, but they're they're a fantastic band. And they're all three of them, you know, there's an American drummer, French bass player. They're all like from those kind of, you know, kind of uh slightly angular, slightly awkward, really into lots of different kinds of stuff um and I just feel people like that just tend to gravitate towards each other you know and and that's not honestly that's not to take away from anybody who just wants to be a a really good songwriter and and really keep what they're doing sort of for want of a better word pure or whatever it's just it's just never been my thing and I think that's the same for everybody in the band as well it's 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 I think we're too uh with with too much of the the fan do you know what I mean like it's kind of We've, we're always searching for something new, so yeah. you
0: know. That is so true. No one's saying that. Every time I ever spoke to anybody from the punk period, they're still stuck in 1977. Anyway, they never moved on. Well, the reason I say that is that occasionally, when I used to meet an old punk, say, "Oh, did you ever get into the you know 80s and in the indie scene?" and they looked at me as if it's like, "No, there was just no good music after 1979." There you go, they were stuck in the past. Any, yes, let's play some music and then more chat. This is another ba- track by the band, and this is London Tonight. <laughs>
1: What's my mission? I'm a sanitary exhibition Based in extradition I make you watch the curtains in the kitchen I make you social limber I make you quite a catch I'm not working on metal I'm semi-contact I'm a pigeon in a hole For the people in
0: Space. there you go. That is um, collapse lung with London tonight. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Anthony, where we were talking or I was talking about what happened in 1996 when things started to change. Anthony, we're curious, Six, we're waiting yeah,
2: so well. That was uh, it's 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 really interesting. So, obviously, the big the-, the elephant in the room here is this song Eat My Gold that we had that um got used as the soundtrack for the the coca-cola adverts uh for um for euro 96 it was their campaign for euro 96 and it's a, it was a song that was on our first album and we on our album uh, on our records it had the phone number for our studio where we had like an old you know tape answer phone and one day i went into the studio and listened to the messages and there was a guy uh, a british guy um calling from amsterdam and he was saying he worked for an ad agency in amsterdam and they were Trying to get some music for this campaign, and he'd gone to a record shop and he'd seen our album and it had Subutio players on the cover. And he looked on the back and there was a song called "Eat My Goal." So he bought it, listened to it, and he was like, "Yeah, we've got to use this music." So that kind of set the whole thing in motion. Um And of course, the, the you know the source of great uh, annoyance for for us is that, of course, you know, once it started to happen, our record company and our publisher went around saying to all uh, you know everybody, "Oh, look at this amazing sync that we." we organized for collapse lung, you know, look at this amazing deal. We organized it. And it's like, well, no, you didn't. They left a message on our answer phone. And then we, we just told you, you know, um, but yeah, so we, we ended up re-recording it while we were doing the second album, while we were recording cooler, the second album, um, we re-recorded it and we did, and Jim changed a couple of lyrics just to, ch- just to make it vaguely about football. I mean, it's all very like abstract and just kind of silly. But he just put a few more references to actual football in it. The he was only called Eat My Goal because it was the when we were recording it originally, it was around the time when the Day Today was on, and there's that Alan Partridge thing where he <laughs> does the World Cup Roundup where he says Eat My Goal. That's just where it came from. Um and anyway, so yeah, so uh we re-recorded it during sessions for the for the second album. And then um we and then the label were like, Well, we want to put it out as a single. And we were like, Well, yeah, but we've got the the album you know I mean, we've got the album and this is a song really that's old so we were like well what about if we as a compromise we do the single that we want to do from the album but we put it on put E my goal on the b side and they're like, oh yeah okay that sounds cool so release day comes and i mean god this is something lots of people i'm sure who listen to your program remember who are in bands who the release day would come and you would go to you know our price or virgin or whatever to see if the record's there you know and there it is and i saw the the cd single and it had a little red sticker on the front it's that that said featuring eat my Goal" from the coca-cola advert and it actually had the coca-cola logo on it which even then i was kind of like why aren't we being paid to have the coca-cola <laughs> label, uh, logo on our record that's advertising um and yeah and basically uh that song had been service to radio like not London tonight the A side it was Eat My Goal so everybody was playing Eat My Goal and even when the chart listings came out when it went into the charts at number 31 it said Eat My Goal so there's no mention made of the A side so it was kind of this sort of uh, very very uh, I don't know I just felt a little bit patronized you know because it was like oh yeah yeah you can have London tonight as the A side and then to all intents and purposes it wasn't Uh, in europe it actually went out with eat my goal on the a side so there's like a you know for the particularly anal collectors out there there's like a different version with a different sleeve where Eat my goal is actually the a side anyway so that was that was that was like what uh summer 96 and then we kind of toured off the back of it and it was quite good and we did some good gigs and we did a couple of festival we did phoenix festival that was probably the highlight of all of our gigging do it was like on the second stage of Phoenix festival, uh, new kingdom, the amazing band from, from New York who we absolutely loved, who were basically the band that we wanted to be. Um, they were playing just before us and then they kept invading the stage while we were playing and stuff. It was very like, you know, it was a real moment of just sort of chaos and, and fun. But the problem was that, you know, with that hit single, there wasn't a hit album to follow it. You know, it was just another album. And I actually think that the hit single might have actually harmed the album. You know, I think expect- expectations of what the album was going to sell weren't weren't going to be through the roof, but I think it actually turned out to be less because of Eat My Gold. That's just my theory. Um, so we kind of ended 96 on a bit of a, a downer uh aggie steve agitarius had not been very well. he hadn't been touring with us for a while because he wasn't really up to it and um and we ended up just finishing the band um we were just thought you know we're not happy with our record company uh we feel like we made we put everything into making this album that we're really proud of and it just got sort of uh chucked or sent out to die that's the term that you hear people use you know um (laughs) And it, the, the, best, the best bit of it is that the last gig we played back then was late 96. I think it was December 96 uh, at the Electric Ballroom. Uh, no, sorry, the Cam- Camden Palace in London, uh, where they used to do their club night on Tuesday nights first, where there'd always be a band on. And um, we'd played it before, and we got asked to do it literally on the day because uh, uh, Salad had pulled out. You remember Salad? Yes. Um, salad name. had pulled out. Yeah, and Salad had pulled out, and we got asked to do it, so we're like, great. And then basically, the last gig we did of the original year of Club Song was us going on stage in front of a bunch of indie guys who were expecting a beautiful statuesque Dutch (laughs) model, and they got us, which I think must have been a serious disappointment. So, So that... So coming out of that into 97 and, and obviously, you know, there's that, yeah, you're right. That era of coming out of the John Major years into the kind of new labor thing. And while the music industry is sort of going, Oh yeah, isn't this great? Isn't, isn't it great that, you know, cool Britannia new labor, blah, blah, blah. We just feel completely separate from all of that, you know, cause we've, we've kind of self-destructed the band and then we've started trying to do something else. And we actually spent a few years God, about we spent a, a long time, about five years, uh, just trying to put a bunch of new material together, just the three of us, me, Jim, and, and Johnny, the bass player. And um, we did the, we did stuff under the name Junior Blanks. And funnily enough, the one person who really loved what we were doing and played our the, the two singles that we did was John Peel. So um, there was one in particular that we did we did which he absolutely loved, like even you know to the point where he rang up rang me up to say how much he loved it and you know and oh I'm gonna be playing this a lot, da, da 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 you know. But the problem is we just put those out ourselves. We didn't we didn't have a deal. There was talk of a signing with a couple of labels. It was a bit different from collapse song in terms of it was a bit more songy. Mm. Um uh still beats, you know, no not much guitar. I played a little bit of guitar, but it wasn't like guitar focused. But there was a lot more well basically we have a joke in the band which is that it's it's basically kind of like Gorillaz, except like, you know, years before them. Not that we're saying anybody... <laughs> we <we're laughs> certainly not say Gorillaz ripped off this really obscure, like, failed project of X Collapse Lung. But it's just a weird coincidence, because th- they they kind of hit on the same idea of sort of beats and quite hooky songs, you know. Um, yeah, it's weird. But yeah, we kind of... We did that... Um, and yeah, so we th- this whole idea of you know the '90s, um, the sort of mid to late '90s, and and it's this relative kind of golden age, at least in terms of you know the way that it was portrayed in the media. We were just completely out of it, you know. We we you know, and it was all kind of self-inflicted, but uh, we we were just sort of in the studio, scratching our scratching our heads, thinking, mm, what, do, what do we do? What yes. should we do?
0: Did yeah, you manage yeah. to get the publishing um, sorted? Because obviously having the hit single, and I'm sure this has happened, I do remember, because I slightly followed them, Chumba did lots of mm. albums and they just had that sort of dwindling audience and then they sort of had that freaky single that took yeah. them. And obviously their bank balance, if they had it sorted, you know, would have been fantastic. You know, I, mm. don't, I don't know. But um, did, you, did you manage to sort of have that sorted so that you benefited from that single?
2: Yes and no um i mean the, the the in terms of publishing we did really well like you know in terms of you know so we're talking about royalties when it gets played on the radio and stuff like that we recouped our publishing deal um it was all like you know it did fantastically well but the record side of it was not good like and 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 basically everything sort of disappeared into a black hole and then it, sort of early 2000s the label kind of kind of wound up And then everyone like lost track of who owned the rights for stuff because rights were getting sold left, right, and center. And occasionally you would see on iTunes, for example, Oh, look, there's Eat my goal. And who's that? Who, who does it say it belongs to? And we'd be like, no idea who that is. Um, so often we, even now, even today we get calls from the publisher saying, Oh, do you know who owns the rights to eat my goal? Because Tesco might want to use it or something like that, you know? And, um, What we do now is we say, well, no, but why don't they use this version that we re-recorded? you know, which, which basically sounds exactly the same. Um, so we, we try to, uh, swerve any of the problems with the licensing, you know what I mean? We, we just, the the publishing side of it's always been great that we were published by Chrysalis and then that turned into BMG and they've always been fantastic. They just literally always do what they said they would do. But, um, we have no way of telling who owns the rights to the to the record anymore it's not on spotify you know none of our catalogs on spotify at all um i don't, don't think it's on itunes anymore um so we're just like right let's just you know take the middleman out of it let's just re-record it and then if somebody wants to use it we go yeah yeah you can use it you just use this version you know and uh, <laughs> And I think people think it's going to be like some radically different version, but it isn't. It's exactly the same. You know, it's just so that we we've got control over it, and and you know, it's uh, that suits us a lot better. You know, it, it it really it really really does. And you hear, I mean, you hear about famous, artists. I mean, isn't Def Leopard didn't Def? I think Def Leppard re-recorded all of their hits so that they could um, bypass the record company. Like yeah. Well, I think, and I think lots of people do it. It's
0: a it's a world that I hadn't appreciated at all until I started doing these interviews, and then sort of I thought, my God, that is the most complicated kind of setup I've ever heard, you know. And um, and most people are a bit sort of they're a bit disappointed, I think, because there's a few bands. It's like, God, you know, you've done all these albums. Would you like to sort of you know, and they're all scattered over the place. Do you want to sort of? I think most people's dream is to sort of put all the material they've done—the B-size John Peel sessions, the flexi discs—put it in a compilation with a nice booklet. You know, it's basically archive, and you get to an age you think it'd be nice to archive it because one day, you know, someone's just going to come along. And throw it all in the bin because, you know, we'll Mm. all be, you know, passed away. And, you know, I know it's a bit morbid, but, you know, I think most people would quite like to just go through that. And then they go, oh, God, it's so complicated. I'm just going to forget that for another 10 years and, you know. Hope somebody else comes along from probably some obscure record label in Germany who will say, yes, I'll sort it all out for you, which seems to be yeah. the case with a lot of those indie bands. Because it was interesting you mentioned the one thing that I, I did, you know, remember John Peel, of, you know, mentioning all the time was the Square in Harlow, um, mm. Essex. And we had like places like the Arts Centre in Norwich. And again, they were just kind of like these kind of little dots in the country that people would just kind of go around, you know, and you would almost be able to guarantee anything between 100 to 200, 300 people, which, you know, was absolutely essential. And those kind of a lot of those venues, um, they don't quite have that kind of network that they had back then. And and that's yeah. I mean, there is there are geeks and there are venues and that, that venue is still going. But, you know, it, it doesn't have that kind of those
2: club nights that um, we used to know so well. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's that whole idea of the circuit that they used to be, you know, and it was like, well, if your band starts out and then they release a record and get a little bit of interest, they're on this circuit and then they might move up to this next one. I mean, you remember when, you know, the university circuit, you know, all these great university venues, they used to be where the majority of them are just not doing I mean, I work in education, you know, I know like the majority of them are not doing live music anymore because they they don't make any money out of it. So they just put lowest common denominator club nights on, um, which is, which is a real shame, you know, not, not just for students. In fact, I, I kind of don't really care about students <laughs> but because I remember I, I never went to university and I used to go to gigs at ULU and the LSE and SOAS and then played gigs at like, well, U, uh, I went, I saw Craftwork at the UEA in Norwich uh, with the like legendary craftwork gig there in 1992, which was amazing, and you know used to play gigs all over the place—Liverpool, Manchester, Bristol—all these university venues are fantastic—and it's all gone, you know. But yeah, with that 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 level, like the square, yeah, there was there was this huge um, huge circuit of venues, and and they're pretty much all gone, and 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 there's the on air well, like it was kind of the first song we did. W- w- <laughs> Quite, when we came back god that sounds so stupid um but you know the, we had this song new song old band and the whole idea of the song was basic we, me and Jim just sat down we were like let's just write a song as if we've come back after 20 years away but we just assume that everything is exactly the same as as as, as when we left it um so and and in in this song there's references in literally like the first thing that I say in the song is that is mention a bunch of venue names like the Princess Charlotte in Leicester and the Duchess of York in Leeds and the Square um and there's loads of you know so this just the whole idea of the song is you know that we're back and we're totally out of touch with everything it's kind of you know we're very i guess it's just typical you know, uh, self-effacing kind of, <laughs> kind of stuff, but we like that. You know, we really like that when there's other, other artists, you know, not just in music in, 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 in anything who have kind of got that similar outlook, we generally tend to really like it, but yeah, that it's such a shame. I mean that, you know, that's where I got all my early experience in music was, you know, I was putting gigs on from when I was 16, just because the stuff that I wanted to see specifically wasn't really catered for at the square. There was the odd thing when I first started going to gigs at the square. There was, I mean, I remember going to see um this, this is a, this is a real obscure? There's a band called Sperm Whales who I know John <laughs> Peel used to play a lot. Who and they were on. Um, there's that uh, quite a famous sort of Shelter video compilation, uh, and they're on that. And you know they they were an absolutely fantastic band. Um And I saw the Wolfhounds at the square uh, in a, probably about '89, something like that. And um, but you know there wasn't really that much that really scratched the itch that I had. So in an in an in an uncharacteristic show of just sort of guts, I I remember writing to um, Stitched Back Foot Airmen. I don't oh know yes. If you remember. yes, yeah, I yeah, Because I had a record of those and I just theirs and I just wrote to them and said, oh, there's this brilliant venue here and it would be really lovely if you came to see. Because I'd seen them supporting Stump in the summer of '88 and they were and they just. They called me back. Like, oh yeah, that sounds fantastic. Brilliant. And they came and then there was another band, Thrilled Skinny from Luton who, who, who I'd already got to know. I'd seen them play. And I'm actually, that other band, I mean, Arndale's two of the guys are from that band. So we kind of still know each other now. And then, um, my God, that's 30 years ago this Christmas. Oh, <laughs> It was, yeah. So we did a gig just before Christmas with the, with those two bands and another band from Romford and, um, It was amazing. And and it was just, I literally had no idea what I was doing. You know, I just was like, oh, the venue's booked. Here we go. And it just went on from there and sort of through that, you know, like a year later, I had another Christmas show and a band and CUD pulled out. They weren't able to do it. And I asked the support band, can you think of anybody else who might want to play? Because I don't want to pull the gig. And um, they were like, oh, there's this band from Colchester rehearsing. In the room next to us, they sound really good. Maybe they'll do it on the way home. And it was Seymour who later became Blur. And they, ca- they opened. They came and opened the show. And it was right on the verge of them getting signed. And they kind of... It was one of these... I've got a video of the, the gig. It's one of these nights where no one's dancing. Everyone's just kind of stood around the edge of the venue, like open mouthed, because they were so different in terms of the level. You could just see the confidence exuding from them. Not in like a really off-putting way. It was very charming. It was really, really charming. And and everyone in the the venue that night was just like, wow. Okay, that like that's you know that's a real different level to what we're used to seeing. And then literally like what three months later they were just they had a single in the charts and were and were absolutely huge. So you know this is this is all you know all of this stuff is thanks to that you know that kind of John Peel uh, idea of being into a bit of everything, you know, and then, and and then that combined with the, being the enabler of a venue like the square. And then that circuit of gigs, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And the sad thing is it just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, yes, there's loads of music being made. There's loads of good things happening, but I do feel a bit, I'm, I I try not to be nostalgic in a sort of uh, dismissive way of the present, you know, but I do miss, I do wish we still had those venues, especially. That's 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 one of the main things, you know. I still wish we had that circuit of venues. Um, But then again, without John Peel, you know, we don't we don't really have that audience anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like that, it's so fragmented now.
0: Fragmentation of the music industry. It's out there. We can't do anything. It's all over. Or is it? I don't know. We're having fun. That's the main thing here on the show. Um, As you do, right. I think we'll break it there, a little bit more music and then the last part of the interview. This is uh, a track titled Burn Rubber Soul.
2: As I fly, but it won't be too bad bad. Don't care what my ma
1: and my pa say It'll take me on my Leyland away day Ignoring the national speed limit Shaving a corner so close I could take my rear wheels
2: It'd a distraction My lack of traction It's an attraction to the smart jalopy faction That's a fact, it's designed to attract Fucking pigs won't keep right off my back If I had my say, if I had my way The 414 would be a six lane highway to the floor like the Gola controller Put crazy ice plates on a brand new roller The trim on his wagons, good 24 carat My Gola sits a pedal and a head straight for Barrett's
1: Come on, you got to burn from the soul Come on, you got to burn from the soul Come on, you got to burn from the soul Attacking no more You know I don't want to hurt you But the feelings I nurture For you are anything but small You know you almost lost me Cos I know this embarrassment Was a pair of goal trainers that would cost me Only a quarter of my goals So I got out my steelo And rolled down the location in the town You must have reached your first floor As I was walking past Camley Stalking past Andy Cos I can't imagine him I know what was going on oh, we've Been oh. around for the show It was shown on. Sure, no. So my marina has it run beside me Run the junkyards daily from our marina up
0: We're funking it up here today on the C86 show. Um, That was Burnt Rubber Soul. And this is the last part of my interview with Anthony Chapman from the band, where I've been talking about the importance of those gatekeepers like John Peel and also the circuit. And uh, this was Anthony's reply to that insightful comment. Anthony, give us your reply.
2: It all existed. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It all existed already. And in a weird sort of way, you know, I guess we all took it for granted a little bit you know because because it was just there and and then it wasn't really until it I mean you know obviously John Peel dying he definitely died too young um there's no question about that which was a huge tragedy but it, it what's even more of a tragedy is what happened afterwards with you know the fact that once he's gone it just felt like uh, it was taken as an opportunity to just clear away any idea of Having a similar kind of approach to music on on Radio One, and uh, and and nothing else has replaced it, you know. Six, I think six music. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I I almost never listen to six music. I almost never listen to music radio anyway nowadays. Um, And six music isn't necessarily my thing a lot of the time, but I'm glad it exists. But there's no replacement for you know a national, uh, you know, mainline station show with that kind of a broad remit anymore and and i just think it's too late now it's been there's been too much of a gap i just don't really see how how it could ever be replaced yes well that's a real tragedy
0: well it is and i hadn't realized until getting a bit older you know being really naive but you know i just thought the djs were really into the music and they picked them and then everyone said no no you know you have to stick to the playlist you have a playlist by by some weird committee and it's like well John Peel didn't he just went out you know because I spoke to a lot of people who went oh yeah you know I was at a gig with John Peel and all these fans would come up and they'd give him records and he would try and play them or he would turn up in Liverpool at this little record shop and say you know what's the latest buzz to these little kids playing you know not little kids yeah. but you know what I mean the, the kids at the shop and they would say oh yeah there's an obscure single here and it was like he you know he was like going out fact finding into the into the wilderness and getting them you know he didn't have somebody saying right this is the script that you've got to say and this is your playlist John so you've but I'll say this is a super band from Brighton and they're going to be really excellent. And this is their latest brilliant new single, Here It Is. Because it's like I thought, oh shit, that's that's rubbish. <laughs> no. But 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 you know, six moves is kind of you stick to the playlist and you have that little banter between songs. You don't say, you know, he would yeah, I mean, I know we sound like old men, but you know, it's like shit, <laughs> I did I didn't know. Because that that for me is the craft of somebody. Putting their music together, and then there's Brilliant. the craft of just being Steve, Wright in the afternoon, being jolly and 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 sort of saying, "How are you feeling, guys?" You know, <laughs> and and trying to have this communication with the audience. Where John Peel would say, "Good night, good riddance," and you just kind of <laughs> smiled. You didn't say, you know, he didn't try and get in with you particularly. You know, anyway, you know, it's it's kind of I, I just kind of realise there's a chapter of music that's sort of it's kind of changed and it, it, I've only just really noticed it. In, you know, I've only realized what's going on quite recently in the last couple of years, I suppose.
2: Yeah, it is everything, you know, the, the whole, yeah, because of the stuff that I teach, um, you know, I have to talk to my students a lot about this whole idea of um democratization of music. And and the thing is, I, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a contradiction um because on the one hand, you know, I do wish there was some, something had taken the... Something had come to fill the void of, of, of you know, John Peel being around. Um, and just, the, you know, and the fact we've lost all those circuit venues, you know, I do feel really, really bad. I mean, the funny thing is, with, you know, looking back with nostalgia, I mean, I'm, I'm in a group on Facebook where uh, Mick Mercer, the photographer, he posts up um, stuff from the photos and flyers and stuff from the Bull and Gate in London. Uh, which is a you know fantastic venue. Like you know, I saw some amazing gigs there over the years. And um, I, even ne- nowadays, when I look at the bills, you know, I look at the, the you know the, the flyers for like a week or a month of gigs. And even the ones at the time that I know I wouldn't have been that interested in, I'm going, I'm like, oh look at that, isn't that great? You know, like the that the, there was this much going on, there was this much stuff happening. Um, but on the other hand. I do believe that the democratization of music creation um, is a good thing. You know, I really, really do think it's a good thing. And and I think that um, being able to just do everything yourself, be in complete control of it, do whatever you want, um, that's great. Obviously, the the downside is that it can be difficult to find an audience and difficult to, to, to make an audience. But um, I do think that, you know, the fact that we don't have to spend thousands and thousands of pounds on making a record in a studio anymore is, is definitely a very good thing. I mean, we, we, with us, with the, you know, kind of fast forward into now with the album that we've just released zero as Band, um, loads of that was made without us all being in the room at the same time. So, um, you know, I would be making beats and then I would send them to everybody and Steve would put some guitar on it and Jim would put some vocals on it. And then we would only really get together to like do the final recordings of the vocal and the guitar and stuff like that. But everything's been written already. When we did the, the single we did like getting on for two years ago, um, we were, we were at no point in making that were we all in the room at the same time. Like I was kind of going around and me and Jim would get together. Me and Steve would get together. Me and Johnny would get together and I'd have my laptop. And then, and, the thing is a a total in a totally objective assessment is much better sounding than anything that we did in the nineties. Much, much better. You know, I mean, part of that is just because we know what we're doing because we're old, you know, (laughs) we're just a bit more experienced now and we know what we're doing, but also it's just the technology available to us is just incredible. Like what you can do with, with really accessible, really limited technology is great. And with my students, often they're really spies and they often tell me, Oh, my tutor in this other module said that there's no point in trying to make a record unless you've spent two and a half grand on a microphone or something like that and i'm just like that's just objectively not true like you know it's the so i i I, yeah i i'm a big one so i'm yeah like i said i'm a bit of a contradiction i'm i'm really i love the democratization of music creation i love the fact that we can all do it but on the other hand there's there's definitely stuff from the past that i miss you know and at the end of the day the, the whole reason of, for it, I think, really the the root cause of it is just the internet, you know, and, and w- which is an amazing and infuriating thing at the same time, you know. Um, it's it's just ch- mutated the way we consume everything, not just music, you know, movies, TV, books, you know what I mean? It's 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 changed everything in every possible way, and I think it's only really now we're starting to see the full picture of. Of what that means, you know, of exactly what that means. Yes. So I mean, so with us, with us, with that new album of ours, we just were like, we don't even want to even vaguely think about trying to get somebody else to put it out. We're just going to put it out ourselves. We're just going to sell it on Bandcamp. We, you know, we set sell, we're selling vinyl or downloads. Um, we did a, like a pre-order thing because you know we knew there was like we already knew there was like a hardcore of people out there who really love what we do and really want to support us. So we're like, well, we're going to do something special that they alone, if somebody wants to pay extra, they'll get this package, which, you know, that's the only way they can get it. So there's like a, the whole image of the album, the whole, basically I made, it's called zero hours band. And I made a logo, which says zero hours band, which is exactly like the sports direct logo. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's certainly not us having a pop at Sports Direct, but it's you know the title of the album Zero Hours Band. It kind of summarises up some of the, the some of the themes in it. You know, it's very middle aged. It's very well, it's slightly you know downhearted about um the realities of life for people, not just people our age, but young people as well. There's a song in it called Never Retire, which is basically because you know. Um, no, I, I, I don't think I'm going to, be, I don't think I'll retire, you know, I don't think I'll be able to. And I think many, many people, my age, and especially younger, especially people that are like 30 and under, that's going to be exactly the same for them, you know, and, and just all the, you know, it's just all this, this whole idea of like pseudo jobs, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. This is really like the, the theme of it, but yeah, so we did the sports direct style logo. We got some black polo shirts made with embroidered, logo on it we wanted to do that anyway because we wanted to wear it on stage but we thought well you know what why don't we do a special thing so if people want to pre-order the album in this package they'll get one as well it's the only chance and then we've done we've been doing gigs the last few weeks and we keep seeing people turn up at the shows wearing those polos which is great which is which is really nice but you know and and, and ev- we've done the whole thing ourselves. um we you know we literally like when orders come in we steve our guitarist he ships them out you know it's 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 completely us from beginning to end and the and of course the irony is that um we you know what we've sold so far at gigs and also online um there's you know if we had a record label we would have had to sell i don't know a hundred times that to even begin to think about like getting any money back for it you know and as it stands at the moment we've pretty much broken even so as far as i'm concerned that's that's all we care about you know if we can do this and break even on it then it's a success as far as we're concerned we're not really you know we've got, we're under no illusions of this being like you know oh this is this is our job now <laughs> <You know? laughs> because we've all got job. i mean not least because jim the front man he is he's he, you know he's the professional musician the rest of us are like part-timers he's uh He's Mister B, the gentleman Rhymer. That's his like alter ego, and that's his that's his job. You know, he's it's <laughs> kind of like a cabareting. You know, and he's gigging all the time. So sometimes for us, trying to do gigs is a bit of a nightmare because we're like, oh, is Jim going to be available? Because we can't really say to Jim, oh no no, you can't do that. You've got to come and do this Collapsed on gig because that's his like livelihood. <laughs> so, Excellent. But um, but yeah, so it's you know the the whole idea of um democratization and stuff like that works brilliantly for us you know it's fantastic we can do absolutely anything in fact once i've finished talking to you i'm i'm in the studio now i'm probably going to work on something new but i'm also doing like instrumental versions of of all the tracks on the album because we're basically um gonna talk to a few people about maybe putting them up for sync for for tv and stuff like that you know and even if we get little ones it's great because we own everything so you know we can you know, we, we it, it would be nice, and it all just come back in to fund making like another record, which we which we definitely want to do. So. Brilliant.
0: So, just lastly, what would you say to your eighteen-year-old self? Which I know is a bit tricky because obviously, the the kind of landscape, the musical kind of industry has changed so much. But you know, just as a, you know, what would you kind of think? God, I wish I'd sort of known that when I was eighteen. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's tough. I mean, I would pr- first thing I would do is I would probably list uh, all of the bands that I would see between the ages of like 18 and I don't know, 21 that I would think, Oh my God, they're so terrible. And then they would immediately become, go on to become really famous. Um, and I would just let myself know about that. So if there's an opportunity to like work with any of them, I probably I, I might think, well, maybe I won't be quite so dismissive. <laughs> the, the classic one was the Manic Street Preachers. You mentioned them earlier. In fact, you know what? I saw them supporting a band from Norwich called Basti. Oh yes! Uh,
0: oh god, I yeah. remember Basti.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I was talking to Mark, the bass player for Basti, the other day. He he co edits um, uh, Electronic Sound magazine. He's still based in Norwich as well. I did some mastering for him. But um, yeah, but he, you know, I, I put them on like in like 1989. I remember going to see him at the Bullen Gate and uh, there was me and a few friends. I'm aged, you know, I'm aged like what, 18 or something, you know, I think I know everything. And then this band supporting comes on and they're wearing funny shirts and doing all these funny poses and watch about a song and then go back out to the bar thinking, oh, that terrible, aren't that band terrible? And then literally five days later, <laughs> <laughs> they're like they're like the biggest thing you've ever you could ever imagine um so i, I think basically what i would do is i would tell the animal myself you don't know anything you know the, the, just if you go into music realizing that i think it might be a lot easier to um to navigate and to and to comprehend just always remind, remind yourself that you actually don't know anything um but i think the other thing is yeah, now part of me wants to be really glib and say, uh, I'd say, don't sign a record deal. But, you know, back then it wasn't, you know, this whole idea. Nowadays, my students always, I'll get, when, there's one place that I teach where most of the students are kind of doing dance music and they go, oh yeah, I think I'm going to sign to such and such a record label to, because they're going to put my single out. And I'm like, oh cool, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, well, they're going to put it on iTunes and Spotify. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Anything else? And I'm like, they're like, no, no, no that's what they're going to do. And I'm like, well, you could do that. Oh, you know. And I'm just like, why are you signing a deal? <laughs> like, there's no need. It's just really, you know, the whole business model of these people is to scoop up as much content as they can, so they can try and go out and license it. Uh, uh, you know, the more the more catalog they've got, the easier it is to license. So yeah, so palmy wants to say, I would say to myself, you know, never sign a record deal. But to be fair, back then, it wasn't a realistic to just do everything yourself from scratch, from nothing. Um, uh, in, in, in retrospect, I think we made the best decision that we did regarding signing with Deceptive. Um, the, the, the best decision that we could have. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I might, I might advise myself to be, to be a little bit more careful. Yes. Um, and, and just, you know, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe not, don't sign a publishing deal, at least not straight away. Hold on to that for as long as you can. That's probably what I would say. But also, oh, I'll tell you what I would definitely say. And I advise this to everybody I know who, because obviously I'm of the age now where I've got lots of friends who have got kids who are like university age. I would say, keep everything. Like, you know, flyers for gigs. All all stuff, you know, tickets, everything. Just keep the lot and maybe, and keep a diary just keep a diary of all the things that you did, the gigs that you went to and stuff like that. Cause I find that I'm at the age now where I do, I am occasionally struggling to remember, or I'll see a reminder of some people like, I totally forgot about that gig that I went to. That was amazing. You know, and you see all the, and I love looking, like I said, that Bull and Gate group, you know, the fact that McMurris has kept all of this stuff for like years, you know, all the way back to like 1986, 87, um, and i just think you know i think i know i know most teenagers if you said that to them now they'd be like oh that's stupid but i just think you know um, then again i suppose i'm saying this now with teenagers nowadays i guess a lot of their stuff is archived anyway with facebook and instagram and stuff like that so yes. they've al- they're almost creating like that kind of archive you know but for me yeah i wish i could go back and just say oh all your flyers all the videos you take at, at your shows that you put on you know all this stuff to do with collapse, everything. Just keep everything. That's what I'd be saying, you know, because you, because it would be nice to have. Uh, we've got a fair bit, but it would be nice to have a really good archive of all this sort of stuff from back then. And it's and it and, and it's social history, you know. That's the that's the thing I think that's really important. That kind of stuff is is really really potent social history, I think.
0: And that is so important, and I completely agree with. So there you go, we're best buds, and that sadly, is the uh, last part of the interview. Hopefully you're still listening and if you are, well done. If you didn't um, make it to the end then frankly you missed the classic. Anyway that is it. This is David Esau the C86 Show. If you want to contact me without sounding too desperate, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show and also um, sounding really desperate now. You can um, look at any of the archive. They're all there for your uh, enjoyment. Um, yes, and that just for your um, if you're making notes, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Just go to the C86 show. They're all there, nearly two and a half, three years worth of quality interview and chat from that golden decade. That was the 80s. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with another song. Um, if I was really prepared, I'd know what that song was. Yes, I do. Yay. It's called Golf People. Have a great week.
1: The the Malignant Innocence of a Tory Wife unaware of what's on the end of the gory knife Signed in twice in their ordinary life Short on strife, port is rife Two holidays in Tuscany It's a must to be a shade of rust, you see Too panicked and they sense the lack of frequent fire points Too dark and they're never gonna join if you're scruffed, then you better buy a suit. Come by car, they'll tell you a better rule. M27, main, no, I don't think so. If you want a drink, though, go to the bridge. Go fill your boots. Golf people don't care about you. Golf people don't care about me. Golf people won't hear complaints about life, or pain, or misery people don't care about you don't people don't care about me don't people don't care about you don't people don't care about anybody else like I said, go fill your boots on public land Make it your own, i will understand You learn everything you know from the orange man Just remember most of all the word sorry's bad. You planned ahead, you got a good deal You made your bed What work feels on trend If anything can be for a man in pink cashmere Who has nothing but fear for blacks and queers Or anybody out of their own narrow pool Without three O-levels from a grammar school It's not a bash this way it's just their own little fascist state A clique of the weak and the scared of Middle Earth The home county's the place of your birth You're wasted. the worth of your shaken rule All they need is more Dacre and a fool I do